0: Bye, bye, bye. Could it be the blood? Could it be the love? Could it be the air that we bring Hello and blood? welcome once again to Watershed Writers, the radio documentary series and podcast that features writers creating literature in the Grand River region in southwestern Ontario. We read, write, and record on the traditional territories of the neutral, Anishinaabe, and Haudenosaunee peoples and are dedicated to bringing you stories about writers from diverse backgrounds. Our slogan is, Listen Local, Think Global. This is Season 4 of Watershed Riders, and I am your host, Tannis McDonald. Speaking for myself, as I tend to do, this autumn is very contemplative. I'm either working or managing my mental health, which is a lot better than not managing my mental health, but it reminds me that the chance to rest and take in your reality rather than let it run roughshod over you is important and it's not always easy to do. For me, rest means reading books that I am not teaching, walking a lot, and talking to other feminist writers. And that brings me to our guest on this episode of Watershed Writers, the playwright, performer, and community organizer Alison Fishburne, whose one-person show Church Boyfriends and Other Impure Thoughts recently ran at the Hamilton Fringe Festival. The play is about growing up in a fundamentalist religion, about purity culture, sexuality, and the force of feminist rebellion. Church Boyfriends and Other Impure Thoughts won the Best in Venue Award at Theatre Aquarius and has since been restaged at the Best of the Fringe at the Staircase Theatre in Hamilton. Allison studied performing improv at Magnet Theatre and with the Upright Citizens Brigade, she has an art degree from Brooklyn College and an MFA in Creative Nonfiction from University of King's College in Halifax. Her writing has been published by Longreads, The Outline, and Sand Journal. She has been nominated for a Pushcar Prize, and she is the founder of the Riverside Reading Series in Paris, Ontario. Alison Fishburne, welcome to Watershed Writers. Thank you, Tanis. I'm very happy to be here. We are happy to have you and um, very happy to be speaking to you in your capacity as a playwright. Uh, we get a lot of fiction writers on, on Watershed Writers, so I'm very glad to, to mix it up and to talk to you about your most recent one-person show, Church Boyfriends and Other Impure Thoughts. And that just played at the Hamilton Fringe Festival in the summer, and you just did a, another run of it right
1: now, did yes. not you? Yeah, it was um, remounted at the Staircase Theater, also in uh, in Hamilton. So that was a um, they call it a Take Two Festival. So the best of the Fringe Festival performances from Hamilton. So yeah, I got to I got the chance to see other people's shows finally that I didn't have time to see in the Fringe Festival. So it was exciting.
0: So it's a one-person show, so it's just you up there talking about your church boyfriends and the impure thoughts. Oh yeah, <laughs> Well, you know, not to attribute,, um, you know, every play saying that every play is nonfiction, but I, I think you've been clear in the way you you speak about it that that this is nonfictional. So it's an autobiographical memoir kind of
1: project yes the first um overtly non-fiction one this isn't my first play um, but certainly the one that is just me telling my truth and uncovering all of it um with the audience as it unfolds so yeah it, it definitely I think is a piggyback on my creative non-fiction jam that's going on right now and you know what I got my MFA in. so yeah it was a really interesting experience to do that
0: I'm interested in, you know, if you're, I mean, I love sliding genres myself, and I'm always interested in how a story changes depending on what genre it is uh, written in. Writers are always searching for forms. Is this a series of poems or should I make it a, a short story? And is this a memoir or should it be a play? Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I think, too, you were thinking about you know, turning that play back into a memoir as well, like moving, moving the yes. pieces around,
1: right? Yes, correct.
0: So... I guess I want to know about your decision to say, I'm going to take this chunk of the memoir that I've been working on, and I'm going to dramatize it. And I'm going to dramatize it, not only uh, for live uh, production, for live performance, but I'm going to be the only one on stage.
1: I had actually started writing it as an essay, Church Boyfriends, and I had it in three parts based on the three boyfriends I get into in the play. And then I, on a whim, I you know, had a mental health crisis as one is want to do. And then when I was coming out of that last fall was like, Oh, I I think I really want to do playwriting again. I want to stage something. I think that'll just kind of recharge my batteries. And so I was looking at, you know, fringe festivals. I'd never applied before it's a lottery system outside of the Edinburgh one. And so I was like, you know what? It's a, it's a chance. I'll do it. If I don't get it, nothing lost. If I do, okay, it's gonna be a really intense (laughs) time putting this together because I didn't have a script at that point. I just kind of like went for it. So the lottery system, I got an assigned number and for the category I had applied for, I was the ninth draw out of nine places. And my partner, Tim was on the couch with me while we were watching the video of this and like live draw and I hear my number And my heart sinks because I'm like, Oh, shit. And that's your
2: number. So that's kind of how
1: (laughs) and I was like, Okay, and then I called my best, best friend, Sarah, she and I have done plays together since 2014 in New York. She's in Pittsburgh. Now I said, Hey, I'm gonna be doing a play now. And I need a director, you know, anyone. So then I made it my mission to get down to Pittsburgh as soon as possible. The draw was end of December. I was in Pittsburgh in January to start working on what became the script for Church Boyfriends and airing out demons. It's a really interesting process. Also write about yourself in that capacity and the religious trauma of it, at the heart of it, spoiler alert, um, is really taken from the memoir manuscript I'm working on. And I didn't realize the friction I had experienced in writing that part of the memoir about going back. I said, you know, but I went back to Florida to retrace events of a personal family death because when it happened, a lot of religious platitudes, religious narrative was put on me. And it was a lot more traumatic than I realized because of the religious background in my In my bones. So, this play was not only going into the church boyfriends, but also the religious experience I had of growing up in Florida, evangelical Christianity, and being so on fire for Christ. Uh, So, yeah, it was like you said, the blending of genres. So, it went from memoir, personal essay to play, and now thinking of it, you know, as my next kind of book project.
0: Yeah, boy, that is, that's, a, that's a journey. And it's really, you're just sort of a few steps down the road in that journey. I'm intrigued to hear about the fact that the play itself, it could be an hour long show. Right. If you had wanted to take it mm-hmm. in that direction, you had you had that much material. And I know that you just you had in this Best of the Fringe at the uh, Staircase Theatre, you had a second shot at it. And did it did it change between the production that I saw in August and what just happened in October?
1: Totally. And we were at the very end of July. So July. Pardon me. Yeah. Okay. Really interesting because you, ha- you saw it this time uh, with live theatre. The audience is just as much the play experience because it's so, all of the senses are being activated from the house music choice, when the you know audience is coming in to take their seat. I I pick the house music, set the tone, get a, kind of an emotional space going. And then whatever I'm saying and whatever I'm directing at the audience, those asides, the laugh lines, I may think is a laugh line, Maybe I don't get the laugh on that. And, you know, you just keep going. In the second run of this show, like you said in October at the staircase, it became more of a drama, which was very surprising to me. The first, and they were more intimate audience size than the French festival, a smaller space. First performance was last Friday. The beginning of the play, I'm talking about my first church boyfriend, my first real church boyfriend. And I was 16 at the time talk about seeing a penis in person for the first time. I have a very oversized winged, uh, illustration. (laughs) So some, some very over the top things that are laughable. Well, they weren't getting the laughs. laughs. Oh my. And if I hadn't have put it up, if I hadn't have, you know, gone through the paces of being a writer, getting rejection, would have been unsettling, I think, to to feel like, oh, the audience isn't with me. But I realized what may have been happening. So when I get into this first address to the audience, I acknowledge that tonal difference that I could also feel. I asked the audience, who else has religious trauma or knows exactly what I'm talking about? And hands went up all over. And so at that point, as the performer, the playwright, the human in the room, it would be really obnoxious and silly to presume or assume that, oh, I'm just going to deliver it exactly how it is written to be a comedy. So in that moment, making that change, that adjustment kind of in my headspace, and also for the audience to know that, I'm with you, you're with me. I want to create this safe space knowing that we all have this experience. It's my obligation at this point. So there were times I would check in with the audience members or someone I'd seen that raised their hand and said, I know you know what this is. (laughs) So preaching to the choir, it, it made me think that before the next show run, before it gets remounted again, to check in with my director and us, have some prepared moments, lines, when that happens, because it's gonna happen again. I'm not gonna just turn a blind side to that, like it's blind eye to that. It'll happen again. If it happened once, it'll happen again. And taking the heavy lifting off the performance and my scripted lines, the rehearsal, the blocking, having those lines to check in with an audience is, is something I think I learned that I need. Uh, and I also, uh, the second night I actually cried on stage, delivering it, which your eyes are getting big because you did see it. And it also caught me off guard because the audience that night, it just felt very safe to go there. And I ended up embodying this memory of myself at 18 feeling like a, terrible person for having sex for the first time in my life and feeling amazing about it, feeling beautiful, confident, sexy. Like I had expressed my own choices for the first time. And I was right back into feeling like, oh, the devil fooled me again. I'm, you know, this is just teen sex lust. And yeah, I was very overwhelmed in that delivery of this memory and where I was at 18 and how that felt at the time and it was intense. It sounds like it.
0: And part of my reaction to that and why I was um, looking surprised, is not because I didn't think that there weren't moments in that play where where I could see all the, all the emotion trapped in your body, the, the silliness mm. and the drama and the fear, and it's all there, which is what I thought made it such a fascinating script and your performance so fascinating. But there's also, there were also a lot of funny moments. And the audience I was in laughed. We laughed and
1: laughed, right? It was fun.
0: Yeah. And again, it wasn't because we didn't get the dramatic parts, but um, you know, in some ways, sometimes our laughter was was making room for that drama, right? You have to laugh Ooh. so you can feel the rest of it. But I think this comes comes down to something really, really important about church boyfriends and other impure thoughts, is that it's got that that lighthearted type, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, but it also explores really volatile material. So exactly as you were just describing about, you know, a young woman's sexual awakening set against uh, the idea of sinfulness and burning in hell. Yes. Right. So you're in a vulnerable position talking about this for sure. Not only because it's your experience, because but because this is taboo subjects for for many people. Right? from you know, all kinds of organized religions or just all kinds of uh, moral contexts, right? There's the more conservative minds who might object to you addressing any of this. There's the need to do it to expose these kinds of gender opposition and female servitude, right? Um, sexual misunderstandings, false and betraying friendships. Mm -hmm. I remember one of the things that made me gasp was the one guy was telling you not to have sex because he wanted to be your brother in Christ. And in my theater (laughs) seat, I would nearly shrieked, you know, brothers like you, you don't need, you know, get away from here, right? Yeah, it's just, it's that combination of of comedy and drama that I thought was so potent here. So I'm Mm -hmm. glad to hear you thinking about ways to help yourself in the performance as well. Because that's, that's been something I've been thinking about since, since I saw it. I thought this has to be really hard to do night after night after night.
1: It was very intense to do that. And I, during the fringe run, because it's seven, it was seven performances, different times, different days of the week, it was hard to get into rhythm. In theater Aquarius, the building has upstairs bathrooms, and I no one else used them the whole time I was there. No one else ever came in that bathroom. So I went in there, I would do my makeup in the space and watch myself get into that headspace. I also have a bracelet that has 10 beads on it. And I would before the, the light change when I first got on stage, I would just count the beads over and over and over. Just doing things to help yourself be grounded in a physical way outside of the theater, in the theater space, just before going on. And also just giving myself these, not affirmations, but checking in with the part of my head of this is, For me, but it's also for someone else in the audience tonight, and someone else will get something out of this. Because as writers, once we write something and then it's published or it's presented, it's not ours alone anymore. So it takes on these new dimensions and meanings, and being open to that, I think, makes a writer not a better person, not a better writer, just it. I think it's an enrichment at that point. So I definitely took a lot of the laughs and support and conversations I had with people like yourself after a performance home with me. And that helped me also think through it more, make connections, these aha moments that you just don't get when you're alone in your room going in circles.
0: Yeah, and it's, you know, for the theater, it's always this this negotiation between what's public and what's private. I mean, it's it's true for, for all writing. The moment it, it gets published, it, it takes on a public life that it, it didn't have um, perhaps in its original conception, but you see it so immediately in the theater, right? That people have written something uh, and you're the writer and the performer here, but even when you are just the performer, I shouldn't say just, when you are performing <laughs> and not writing, there's still this kind of this kind of contract between the performer and, and the audience that the performer is going to take responsibility for talking about hard truths mm. and people will have a private experience, but they'll have it in public. Great way of describing it. I had this long conversation with this woman I didn't know after, uh, you know, after your show, I think you came upon upon the the end of us, the end of us talking, right? Because she, she understood that I, that I I knew you, but she was telling me, she was of a different, different generation than me. So she was telling me about, you know, what it was like when, when she was a young woman and she's just like, oh, are you kidding? The suppression of any sort of sexual idea, right? And uh, so, you know, so I, I think also it's very feminist as well, right? Like the women afterwards wanted to talk about what they understood, about what you would, you said, even if their experience had been different than yours, right? Yes.
2: And it isn't
1: just religion. It's It is like you're saying, like it has a more feminist feel to it, not just, you know, feminist faith because I am talking about seeing a penis for the first time, talking about not knowing what to do, not knowing my own boundaries, body, wants, desires. So I think that's what I enjoyed of seeing anyone who didn't even have to know what being in a church was like, period, could still relate to something.
0: Now, um, we are lucky in that you have recorded one of your performances for us and we are going to listen to a little clip of church boyfriends and other impure thoughts recorded at the hamilton fringe festival in july 2023 here it is
2: i went on a missions trip that summer after my freshman year with the youth group from the megachurch and in the lead up to that trip i started asking more questions like Why are we praying for prosperity on earth if we're not supposed to be living for this world, but the next? (laughs) (laughs) And why are only some people allowed to be equal? You know, it turns out my belief system was turning more socialist than evangelist. (laughs) The last night in El Salvador was a church service for all of us teens. After the sermon, the pastor addressed all of us and said, I want you all to close your eyes with me. That's right, Go on, close your eyes. I want you to bow your heads. Go on, it's all right. It's just us and God. And I want you to think of an area in your life that you've been struggling. Jesus sees the pain you've been in, and he wants to unburden you. He wants you to give it all up to Him. That's right. Give Him your pain. Maybe it's that you've been having impure thoughts. Maybe you've been having those impure thoughts and acting on them with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. That all felt very... Oddly specific to me (laughs) So we're all crying Kneeling down before the Lord of heaven and earth The pastors are laying hands on laying hands on those of us who are crying me Those of us who are near hyperventilation me again and here I am thinking, oh my gosh, I've been deceived by the devil again into thinking that my love, this relationship I have, it's just lust. It's unadulterated, teen, sex, lust. So I get back from El Salvador, and I call Gerald. Yeah, I got back this morning. Listen, I don't think, I don't think we should be spending the night together anymore. Yeah, I just think we should stop what we've been doing. And then eventually, not very long. We started having phone sex, <laughs> which isn't real sex. No, no. So,
0: hearing that, I want to ask you a little bit about the forum on faith and feminism that um, you've been uh, you've been working with several other women on this uh, conversation about purity culture.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Because that, of course, is is one of the, the key terms here um, to for uh, young women to stay naive about sex and to save themselves for marriage and a, a whole virginity um, debate about what virginity really is and um, some of the ways you push back against that. So tell me about this, this purity culture uh, conversation that you've been having with um, other writers and other um, other feminists.
1: The. Second night of the Fringe Festival, after the performance, there was a conversation between myself, Dr. Sarah Mosler, and Shema Benambarak. She's a Moroccan-Canadian writer, and Dr. Mosler is a researcher down in Michigan who wrote a book called Virgin Nation, Sexual Purity in American Adolescence. And Shema's book is Halal Sex, about the intimate lives of Muslim women in North America. And then there was me with church boyfriends and other impure thoughts. So that was the first conversation that I had about the play and also in the context of these other two books with these incredible women. The conversation was about organized religion and the role of purity culture, as you mentioned, and keeping women in the dark about their own bodies, about their own desires, being told what our desires should be what our role as sexual creatures is, what our role as reproducing bodies is. It was really, it was interesting to be with Shema because Shema is an MFA colleague of mine from University of King's College. So her and I have known each other since 2018. And she was working on the book in our MFA program. And I, my book project for the MFA was not close to church boyfriends and other impure thoughts. So being able to reunite with her to talk about our experience with religion, hers with Islam, mine with Christianity, was really interesting, uplifting, to be in this conversation with a woman from another cultural background, another religious background than my own, but finding that the narratives are so similar, the double standards Mm -hmm. are so similar, the men getting the pass, getting to be, you know, the brother in Christ, getting to tell a peer what she should want and do. And that's okay. That's totally acceptable. But if I had gone to my roommate or my, not my roommate, my neighbor, and I said, Hey, John, I know what you've been doing with, like, how would, you know, playing that out in my mind, is like, that would never have happened. I've never. Um, I'm saying this as your sister in Christ, okay? You know, but I know, it's it's so comical. That was such a pleasure to talk to Shema and discuss it, you know, with, with Sarah Moselner in the context of where we are today, 21st century, all these antiquated ideas of acceptance and self-worth, self-awareness. And I I forget who it is. Her line is something like, transformation challenges power. So that is so true. Like when you have a movement of women, when you have young women who are speaking out and standing up for themselves, it, it's scary because it shakes the powers that be. It, it it confronts that you're not always going to be in power. And I think that's what we're seeing below the border is a real clawing for power and the right to keep saying all the garbage that you know without admitting what my political views are uh, <laughs> i think it, it should be scary for a lot of people because they've they've thought that oh we've got certain people in their place and they're going to stay there and that's just not reality it never has been it, it's like the conversations I'm starting to have as someone in her going into mid thirties, it feels liberating and hard won. And it took me to this point in my life to acknowledge that what I experienced as a young woman was religious trauma and totally not fair, not my fault. It happened and it at the time, and I I don't have this conversation with my parents, but at the time I was raised in a way that I think they believed would set me up for a socioeconomic future. You know, my parents were like, we were not well off, had the things that basic needs. But when you look at how religion in North America has been used, it's a lot of social mobility because the purity and Uh, marrying into a good family all of that helps you in these social economic socioeconomic ranks so I in, in part of myself and this is actually I haven't really discussed this out loud before but we're it's it's stirring my psychic space in this direction that I think I was raised in such a closed conservative way because it was thought to be how I would progress, how I could have a better life in the United States. And if I didn't get pregnant before marriage, that's like a gold star. If I didn't get a reputation for for being a slut, that's also a good thing. So I have a lot of theories and, you know, a lot of therapy ahead of me and behind me (laughs) that I've I've been I've been thinking of things a lot since the play. And uh, I'm, like you said, seems like I'm at the beginning, a few steps in to a, what I think will be a long process. And part of my writing career will be, I think, thinking about this and writing about it and talking about it and having more conversations like the Purity Conversation, that forum.
0: So nothing ever happens in isolation, right? And I really, I'm very appreciative of the fact that you mentioned like a socioeconomic bracket and I'll say the dirty word that no one wants to say in Canada, class.
2: Ooh. Yeah, oh,
0: yeah, I know we, we want to pretend we don't have a class system, but there's that great book by Deborah, Deborah Dundas.
1: I am reading. I have that. Yes, Deborah Dundas and she's a University of King's alumni. Oh, isn't I this? didn't know that until I read the back, but I, that book hits a lot of this on the head. Definitely. So I'll, right. Continue because yeah. I'm, I'm such a fan
0: too. No, no. So I just, uh, but I think it's interesting because we think about you know, these these kinds of oppressive systems and, um, you know, something my, my partner says a lot is no one wakes up in the morning and says, how can I uh, be terrible today? Right. <laughs> <laughs> but people do wake up in the morning and they say, I want to adhere to this belief system that I've been adhering to for decades right? Mm. And so if the belief system is also mired in this idea of um, preserving a well-off future, a well-off middle-class future that mm. seems precarious given, you know, in a given family, then, mm. you know, then that shores up all the other sort of um, things that people want to turn a blind eye to in terms of oppression, right? Mm. Um, and I say that not because I want to um, let anyone off the hook, but to say if we ignore the fact that there are those kinds of underpinnings, I think we do it at, at our peril, right? I agree. So I like that and I, I wanna encourage you to write more about that. About So there's the other big taboo, like is, talking about sex is supposed to be taboo, but the real taboo is talking about money.
1: Money, oh my gosh, yes. Right? It, and I am a black sheep in my family. With I moved out, I moved out of Florida, I moved to New York City at the age of 20. And I, I say that at the end of the play, I set that up. And that was I announced that to my family. Uh, I told my mom, and she said, no, you're not. I was like, yeah, I'm moving to New York City at the end of the year, because I was in the middle of I was at the end of my sophomore year of college in Jacksonville, Florida. And I was ready to get out of Florida I was ready to go and between 17 and 24 years of age is when we we start to create our own identity what do I believe in separate from what I was raised to believe in because the belief systems that we grow up with in ad in childhood and early early adolescence it comes down to this like survival almost because our initial love objects our caregivers mommy daddy Uncle, aunt, anyone in that your caregiver system, those are your love objects who you need that acceptance from because your survival depends on that acceptance. And so, me adhering to evangelical Christianity, speaking in tongues when I was seven years old, getting back, like all of these things, that was also to win this acceptance. And survival, a roof over my head, food in my belly, um, acceptance in my community, acceptance in my family, my extended family, all of those things that once you can support yourself and be out on your own, unless you stay at home and you're part of a very close-knit family communal organization, you start to question and you start to explore and push boundaries. And figure out your own thing because you can at this point. So that's exactly what happened with me. There's this thing of, oh, once you go to college, then you leave your religion behind, which it's not coincidental because now you're learning about philosophy, sociology, what I acknowledge in the play of examining religious texts as mythologies. Something that I had never had the ability to do and question really critically think about even though i have it in the script for the play that i was questioning things along the way even when i was 10 years old and the rapture still hadn't happened and everyone's cool i'm thinking okay some something's am i the only one who's terrified here that it didn't happen but i was like psyched myself out that I'm going to die tonight and talking about Y2K. There was more in the play. This is like extended script material that was cut, but I was having panic attacks about the afterlife at the age of 11, that I couldn't see heaven the way I was taught to see it at night. I would just see black and I existed nowhere ever again, forever. And I was alone without heaven or hell. And that went on for several years of falling asleep at night and feeling this black hole. That's not normal. And certainly something that I also in my family unit and at church too didn't have anyone to guide me through that thought process to I felt this is on me. I don't have enough faith. I don't have something's wrong with me because that's another part of the love object thing that these beings in our lives will ev- will never do anything wrong. These are these are the all good. So if I'm feeling like I did something wrong, it's because I'm the bad one. I'm the bad child. I'm the bad Christian. I'm the bad yada, yada. So it was really difficult to separate myself from that and create my own internal compass as as an adolescent and then move away from home, be in New York City. And that's when uh, in two thousand and thirteen, I also, uh, my younger sister died in a tragic car accident in Tallahassee, Florida. And so this me living in the world, my own identity, my own stuff, I then had to go back into the belly of this religious narrative with the, the context of, oh, she, you know she's in heaven, these kinds of platitudes of God needed another angel. It's part of God's plan. All of that was put on to this experience of losing my sister, very, very close sister. So only at you know 34, I'm really realizing the potency of that narrative at that time because of writing this play and getting into this.
0: I'm very sorry for your loss. I I, I know that your your sister had uh, had passed away, but I wasn't sure of the the circumstances. So thanks for letting me know that and to saying that it's it's very very hard to lose a sibling when you're young. I yeah I, again I look forward to you, know, you you working your way through that in in terms of writing because I think if you're talking about that people in the audience needed to hear you you know, parse your way through um, the sexual oppression of, of religious fundamentalism. I think too what you mentioned about about grief and mourning the way fundamentalism will will crush down on real feelings mm-hmm. and uh, delay the grief process i think is a um, a good a good thing to explore yes and the other thing i wanted to say was for 11 year an 11 year old to try and visualize themselves in the afterlife and not be able to is uh, really something that you should be able to talk to your elders about, right? So what an existential crisis for a <laughs> child to go through. No wonder you were having a panic attack. I'm having I, one just listening to it. There, you know?
1: there was a line in the play that got cut that I really, maybe in the extended version, it was my, my panic attacks were always more regular than my period. <laughs>
0: You know, we're laughing and we're laughing because it's terrible. Yes, because it's terrible, <laughs> right? So I don't want any of our listeners to think that we're having a lighthearted moment. We're having both. We're having the comedy and the and the and the drama together. They're both
1: masks. They're they're the yeah. Side yeah.
0: I want to ask you about your favorite reads about sexuality and organized religion. Mm-hmm. Do you have some sort of some recommendations that you can make for our? our listeners so certainly a uh, uh, halal sex
1: yes right? halal sex and uh, and virgin would... nation. virgin nation the other one by sarah mosner you know those are the two top of mine because i've been so wrapped up in that since the summer about female independence I've, i i'm a real fan of tove Ditlevson. she's a but childhood youth dependency it's like this trilogy that she it's fiction but it's very autobiographical about her relationship to her mother. There is class in there, Uh, growing up poor, becoming, you know, marrying, working at a very young age, marrying wealthy to be taken care of, to get out of under the... It's been a while since I read it, but that one was really, I felt very powerful about knowing yourself, learning who you are. Very tragic at times, but the way she writes about, there's this one line where she describes childhood as a coffin. And whoa, yeah, yeah, it's a very short sentence. It's a translation, but just these very stark points and knowing that I now having shared that I had panic attacks from very young age, I felt like, oh, yeah, exactly. Like (laughs) someone else knows. There's another book by Christine Ann Lawson called Understanding the Borderline Mother. It breaks down different types of mothers and unpacks the type of mothering. It's about the the volatile relationships that different types of mothers can have with their children and the roles that children fill as the all good child, the one that is the total mirror of the mother and is like my, my perfect creation child. But then there's the maybe the other child who confronts that mother and challenges the mother. And depending on the type of mother can be very upsetting and there can be a very friction-based relationship. And I found that very helpful. My, my therapist actually recommended that to me a couple of years ago and I devoured it. It's very it's a difficult read, but it's from an academic research-based perspective. So those those four are really top of mind.
0: Cool. Sounds like a good list. I want to give you a chance now to read from uh, from something else. We doing a we have been doing a lot of talk about church boyfriends and other mm-hmm. impure thoughts as well. We might, but you of course have written other things. And yeah, I'd like to give you a chance to uh, uh, set up a,
1: a little reading of something else and and to give us a yes. piece of it. Now that we've we've also talked about my my the experience of losing my sister, I have written a bit about that, and I have a man uh, a memoir manuscript about that. But this is I'll read an essay. It's a flash nonfiction essay that was published in. It's called Sand Literary, and it's out in Berlin, Germany. So this was published last summer. This was actually nominated for the Pushcart Prize by my fabulous editor, which felt. Very amazing, very grateful that it found a home there. So it's called Safety and I'll go ahead and read it. I wear a powerful spring on a cotton cord around my neck. The spring is a thick steel coil coated dark blue about two inches long. It used to be compressed to half its size inside a device called a brake cartridge, a safety mechanism the size of my hand plugged into a table saw that uses electrically charged saw blades. Should one of these electrically charged saw blades come into contact with a conductor of electricity, such as a finger in the wrong place at the wrong time, the electric signal to the blade changes, activating the brake cartridge within five milliseconds. Within those five thousandths of a single second, while a finger and life attached to it hang in peril, the powerful spring is released, sending a molded aluminum stop into the spinning blade, reducing the blade's rotational speed from 4,000 times per minute to zero, saving the finger and a life attached to it. I found the spring in the bottom of an industrial-sized plastic trash bin in a wood shop where I sometimes work. What caught my eye first, though, was the discarded 10-inch blade embedded into the aluminum stop of the brake cartridge next to the spring. Among wood scraps and sawdust, the combined object was mesmeric machine versus machine, a snapshot artifact of averted danger, safety. I pulled the blade from the trash bin for a closer look. I inspected the way the curved teeth of the blade bit all the way down into the aluminum stop. I imagined witnessing the moment of impact. And I wanted a souvenir for what I had imagined. I dropped the blade back into the bin, opting to keep the powerful spring because it fit inside my pocket. I have another souvenir, an airbag I never look at. The airbag is a sheet of white nylon that used to be compressed inside the steering wheel of a you know where this is going Should a car come into contact with an obstructive object and crash, an array of electric sensors in the car are triggered, activating the car's safety system. Within five hundredths of a second, the number of airbags deemed necessary for the type of crash detected are deployed. In the steering wheel a canister of sodium azide a white odorless poison is lit by an electric match causing a chemical reaction the sodium azide is converted into nitrogen gas and inflates the airbag preventing the driver's head and chest from hitting the steering wheel i found my souvenir airbag on a car in a tow lot the collateral damage of a head-on crash with a charter bus I was told the driver of the car had died instantly, because not even the airbag could have saved her life. What caught my eye first at the car was my dad, because he was retrieving personal effects from behind the driver's seat. Then he wailed, falling backward, catching himself on the ground as though the ground had prevented him from falling any further. I was standing next to the car, looking through the space where there should have been a door, observing the driver's seat, the painted outline of my sister's figure in stains of char and blood. I took a step toward my dad but stopped because I saw what sent him falling. And I looked away from the pool of liquid red on the floorboard behind my sister's outline. And the first thing I saw when I looked away was the steering wheel bent upward in a 90 degree angle, and the deflated airbag laying on top. I went to the airbag. I inspected the piece of cloth that couldn't have saved my sister's life. And I imagined the airbag was the last thing to touch her when she was still alive. And I decided I would keep the airbag as a souvenir because it was a final moment with my sister, an artifact of our missed goodbye. Sometimes I hold the cotton cord on either side of the powerful spring around my neck. I rotate the cord until the motion spins the spring. I pull the cord tight watching the spring snap to a stop. I do this again and again because I like watching what I can control. Other times, without thought, I wrap the cotton cord around my hand like a rosary or I'll pinch the spring with my fingers, a futile attempt to compress it to the original size it would have been inside the brake cartridge before it was activated within five thousandths of a second, which is ten times faster than an airbag could save a life.
0: Whew. Wow. Well, thank you very much for that. I uh, think I'm going to save my comments on that until I can think about it a little more. But I appreciated mm. the um, I pre- appreciated your attention to detail about how things work, and of course how they also don't work. Mm. Um, but this does lead into a question that I that I wanted to ask you about, uh, especially about writing a memoir or writing anything that is, that is um, creative nonfiction. Mm-hmm. What do you find are your biggest challenges? Like The things that you want to resist in the writing and still get something else done. And um, I'll give you an example from my own writing. For example, mm-hmm. I always want to write and speak frankly about trauma but I also want to avoid an all melancholy, all melodramatic victim position, mm, mm-hmm. right? So I'm always like, want to be frank and want to redeem that idea that uh, trauma puts us in a fi- a victim box, right? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what I struggle with all the time when I'm writing, that's what one of my load stars. That's what I keep thinking of. Have I been frank and resistant to, um, to sort of um diminishment of my mm-hmm. frankness? So what about for you? What are you trying to do? And what mm-hmm. are you resisting as something you don't want people
1: to have a reaction about? That is such an interesting topic. I think in the context of what we're talking about, the the trauma and resistance are what create that dramatic tension that we hope a reader or audience will feel, because that's also what keeps people engaged in the story we're trying to tell. So for me, I do all of my heavy load writing in journal form. I have a steel box in my living room with journals organized by year from when I was 15 years old. (laughs) It's my prized possession, (laughs) but heavy as hell. Um, So I feel like I do a lot of the intense, raw nerve writing away from writer at desk, so to speak. And I also do see a therapist. I have a psychiatrist. So I also feel like I don't go to my writing writing necessarily as that initial emotion dump. So maybe that also helps me so that I'm not coming to the desk hot. But there have been times where... In in early versions, let's say, of of my memoir manuscript, which the working title is Abby Died Last Night. In the first part, it's going through the actual events of finding out she died and then the immediate events that followed. And then the second part is me going back to Tallahassee with the researcher journalism brain to confront my chronic PTSD, this unprocessed trauma and try to find a way to continue living in all seriousness. So the early versions of those early chapters were me going through every single detail and emotional, basically bleeding the page. (laughs) Really intense. A writer can do that, but a reader cannot. And I mean, a reader just cannot go through that. I think as writers, we also read other work and some sometimes we can feel when, oh my gosh, this, I gotta get through like these pages, I gotta flip, flip, flip. And then I guess I have this awareness of what is for me and what is for a reader or an audience member. That's something I've worked on for years. I feel like with the reading I just did, that was actually very close to the first draft of that. There were a couple of fine tuning things, but it was like creating another character for my grief. So my grief became that spring. So writing about how that spring operates, how a structured psychological state should operate. And then it goes haywire. It comes into contact with something else that sets it off, comes in contact with a death tragedy sets it off. The airbag, just a normal piece of white nylon cloth, boom, not that anymore. So it, the airbag, these safety objects became the conduit for the emotion. So I was able to transfer that onto these objects instead of transferring it onto a reader. So I think that may be part of my art background. I have an art degree. And so like sculpture is part of my background. So I think creating these physical objects or inanimate objects to then transfer things to is part of my practice. The longest part of my practice actually. Like my last play before Church Boyfriends was called A Man's Best Friend Dies. It's a whole play about a dog dying. And in the first act, each scene, the inanimate object of this dog gets thinner and more emaciated. And then the second act is a funeral for this dog. A comedy, but yes, and the nod that you just gave me, you know that it's there's a lot more to it. This processing of this longer grief that I didn't get with my sister, it became that dog progressively weakening and the acceptance of this death. And I pulled lines from my sister, the experience the funeral home. There was a character named Tim, the funeral director, who was the funeral director at my sister's funeral. And, some lines that were just so cringy from real life, I put in the mouth of this character. And an audience doesn't have to know my story for it to still be a story. I I think the challenges I face are off page and in my journal of confronting things that keep me in bed for hours and hours and hours and have me sit on the couch watching RuPaul's Drag Race and just crying for no reason. <laughs> it's just we all experience those challenges in different places, different ways, right? Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah, indeed, indeed. Yeah. Okay, I want to ask you to read one more thing for us. We're getting yes. the end of our time. Do you have something else that you want to set up and read for
1: us? Yes, this is... Fiction, this is my first uh, real public foray into fiction. Although I will admit it was me taking a dream that I had, psychoanalyzing it and mixing it with memories of childhood. So it's called Possession and it's flash fiction. I stood up from the dining table because they asked me to. In this house, requests are instructions, but standing in front of them wasn't enough either. The light over the table cast too much of a shadow They turned on a table side lamp and told me to stand over there. Instead, they wanted to see what I had done to myself. Show your grandmother. I was too embarrassed to move. Go on, show her. I peeled my shirt from the waist up. The band-aids had been mother's idea to cover the cuts and scrapes, the bug bites, the once scabbed over marks I couldn't leave alone. And your arms. I pushed back my sleeves. She has them on her legs, too. I hold up the legs of my shorts. If you keep this up, they say, you're going to get blood poisoning. What's that like, I wonder? The start of our visit had been dinner delivered to the table with post-war perfection. Dessert always happened after the dinner was cleared, once the dishes and the sink itself had been washed, and the silverware grandmother always counted was back in the drawer, well, accounted for. Mother helped while I waited in the dining room with grandfather. He never had much to say in the company of his wife and their daughter. I don't think he had an option. They call me into the kitchen to say how much I want. Before I can answer though, grandmother has a warning. When I was your age, she says, I only weighed 104 pounds. I don't know that even years from now, she will still have been only 104 pounds. Over bowls of peach ice cream, the conversation turns to the new school year. Mother jokes that even in the year round heat, I should have to wear long sleeves and pants. Wearing anything that shows my arms and legs, she thinks should be earned. I had grown over the summer and that was a problem too, or at least it sounded like it was. She's growing up too fast, they said. We'll have to keep an eye on her. I had practically blossomed overnight and grandfather went to his bedroom to wait out the conversation about his granddaughter's fledgling body. He waits out most conversations by switching to one of his favorite programs on his own television at his own choice of volume in his own bedroom. Without asking, I also leave the table slipping away to the bathroom between the separate bedrooms at the end of the hallway. I lift my shirt in the mirror over the green and white formica. I twist. I look at my angles and curves. I run my hands over my stomach, feeling the way my softness meets the edges of Band-Aid fabric. I don't know what I look like without being told. I sit on the toilet seat to wait out the conversation at the dining table. My thighs have new lumps between the patchwork of Band-Aids. I press on one, I press another and it gives. Something under the surface moves to one side. I use both hands to push the sides until I split. I keep pushing and pulling until the split becomes a hole. A periwinkled texture appears deep inside of me. I keep going, opening myself, and the color rushes to the surface. It streams up out of me like a bound tree then bursts open. My hands find another piece of me. Each new split becomes a hole that fills with a new color, streaming until it bursts open with lavender and key lime, fuchsia and chartreuse, amaranth, indigo, seafoam. I am possessed. I learn who I am with each new bouquet I cultivate. The conversation has come to the other side of the door. They want to know what I'm doing. Why is the door locked? Why won't I answer them? What's taking so long? I run my hands through me while the volume of the television on the other side of the wall drowns out their line of questions. My nails catch and open a hot spring. My fingers follow the trail of warmth as it fills in all the negative space of my private landscape. A mass of reeds, wraps, and pulls on my hand until my arm disappears beneath the surface, then my shoulder. The ebbs and flows, once a slow dance, now hurry. I cry out. Something's wrong. They can't hear me. I scream before I can't. I need help. The warmth turns to cold that reaches my neck and I don't look down because I'm not ready to die. My mouth, my nose, my eyes, then my crown disappears. I've never been one to hold my breath, but now I wish I had more practice. If this is the end though, I want to see it. I open my eyes. The pressure on the other side stings at first, but when the depths of me come into focus, my lungs fill with everything I need. I am surrounded by a vibrancy I've never known. I am even more than what my hands beheld on the surface. I swim through every shade of morning, noon, and night. Thank you so
0: much. Uh, Wonderful to hear and wonderful to hear your forays into fiction as well. We are just about out of time for our conversation. Uh, I know that you host the Riverside Reading Series in Paris and that it is resuming on November 25th, Mm -hmm. and uh, everyone should go to the Dog-Eared Café in Paris and hear this reading series. Uh, Do you want to say a little bit more about other podcasts that you're on?
1: Yeah, the what we talked about, the purity conversation with Sarah Mosler and Shema, that was recorded for a podcast down in the States called Straight White American Jesus. Great name. uh, For a series that Sarah is doing called Pure White. And that can be looked up uh, online. And it will start airing in eight part series starting November 4th. So at the time of this, episode coming out uh people can find the the podcast already up and probably join in the last few episodes live and then the conversation is a bonus episode lots of good listening i want to thank you allison for coming
0: on the podcast on watershed writers uh this week and for being our very special guest
1: thank you so much
0: thanks for joining us for this episode Watershed Writers comes to you every Sunday at 10 a.m. on Midtown Radio, and if you miss an episode or just want to listen again, you can catch up with episodes posted to SoundCloud and to our website at WatershedWritersAllOneWord.ca. Coming up on the podcast: novelist Carrie Snyder, Governor General's Award-winning author Anuja Varghese, and poet Chris Banks. Francis Roberts Riley is the founder and producer of Watershed Writers. John Roscoe is our technical producer, and I am Tannis McDonald, your host and voracious reader. Our theme music is "Water" by the Kitchener singer songwriter Alicia Brilla. Join us again next week to listen local and think global. <laughs>